Do you think there are other things that people will wake up this morning and find out aren't going to happen? Nah. Everything's fine. Why worry? It's democracy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPSK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, the Green Renaissance Network in Columbus, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and on Radio Sputnik, five days a week, blanketing planet Earth. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, Muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. And yes, once again, another thrilling action-packed adventure, this time courtesy of the United Kingdom. Thank you very much. And we'll get to the Brexit momentarily. But first, some Brexit breaking news. I don't know how to do that. Some breaking news uh, out of West Virginia. We talked yesterday uh, about the flash flooding that was going on in London and how that could affect the Brexit vote. Flash flooding uh, shut down the railway uh, system, the metro in, in a lot of places in London, making it difficult for people to get home in time to vote, causing chaos. At the, uh, at the train stations and so forth. Uh, once again, climate change coming into places you might not otherwise expect it, having effects you might not otherwise know about. Well, we're seeing it again out here now in West Virginia, where flooding uh, has, has been terrible in an ongoing story. Desi Doyen, what is the latest that we have right now out of West Virginia? Uh, the latest that I have seen is that now 14 people are confirmed dead in flash flooding. Um, the par parts of West Virginia received 9 to 12 inches of rain in 24 hours. This is really unusual. It's one of those extreme precipitation events that we are seeing more and more often of. You know, uh, uh, scientists said, hey, listen, when you have global warming, that's going to put more water vapor into the air. So that means more water vapor available to rain upon people. And also uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, put out a study two years ago saying that, hey, look, heavy downpours have increased in the northeastern United States 71 percent since the 1970s. You call it an, an, an unusual event. The problem is these are becoming less and less unusual. That's We're seeing right. these constantly now all over the country in West Virginia. We saw these uh, just a week or two ago in Houston. Um, and it's not, of course, just in our country, China. Just we had a, uh, a news item yesterday uh, as they were facing extreme weather in 
China, there were 78 dead amidst a, uh, a very rare tornado, which rarely strikes outside of, uh, at least outside of North America. And uh, in China, there were seven, 78 killed. And then as soon as we got off the air, that number was updated. Yes, it's now up to 98 confirmed dead by the, according to the U.S. Uh, I mean, the Chinese government, 800 mm-hmm. people injured. You know, part of it is also that since they don't have that many tornadoes, they're, they're, they're rather rare. They don't really have a warning system like we do. So uh, people often don't know what to do because it's not part of their culture to have any sense of what to do. They, they don't really know. So and that's made even worse. Imagine the resources that the United States would put together if 14 uh, people were killed in West Virginia by ISIS, if 98 were killed in China by ISIS. Imagine the way the uh, the world would come together to battle that. But when it comes to global warming, ah, you win some, you lose some, apparently. Um, all right, speaking of winning some and losing some, thank you for that update, Desi Doyen. Uh, Great Britain has voted to leave the European Union. I'm sure you've heard it by now. The results of the EU referendum, or so-called Brexit, British exit, uh, vote was hand-counted in hand on hand-marked paper ballots in front of the world, and the results defied even the predictions of the UK Independent Party, They had led the uh, Leave Coalition to leave the European Union. Uh, And their predictions, as we went off air yesterday, was uh, that they would be losing uh, narrowly, that it would be a narrow loss in the referendum just after the close of polls as we went off the air yesterday. Instead, they won, uh, with those calling for Great Britain to leave the EU, defeating the Remainers by a vote of some 52 to 48 percent. Conservatives, or people who call them th- call themselves that in the U.S., have been celebrating the success of the Leave campaign in Great Britain, which was largely driven by a call f- uh, of, uh, f- for nationalism that was exploited, uh, that exploited anti-immigrant sentiments. In the country, does that sound familiar to you by any chance? Nationalism, exploiting anti-immigration sentiments in the country. Sounds familiar. The campaign to make Great Britain great again has now caused world markets to freak out. The Dow closed in this country by more than 600 points on Friday. Asian markets plummeted as well. The British pound fell off a cliff to a 31-year low. Gold futures have now spiked. U.S. Treasury bonds have spiked in no small part thanks to what is believed to be the stability of the U.S. government. But is that trust misplaced? Uh, More on that in a moment. British Prime Minister David Cameron, who agreed to allow the referendum in the first place back in 2013, in part to appease the far right of his own ruling conservative party out there, He supported remaining in the EU, but with the results of the vote now in, Cameron has announced that he will now resign. He'll wait until this fall, remaining on long enough to uh, help out with a smooth transition out of the EU partnership, at least as smooth as that can possibly be. Martin Longman, writing over at Washington Monthly, notes that 48% of Britons agreed with Cameron that the UK should remain in the EU. So the vote split down, split the nation right down the middle. He says that uh, Northern Ireland wanted to stay and does not want a closed border with Ireland. They may seek to leave the UK and create one big unified multi-denominational island. 
Scotland will once again have a referendum on independence, and this time, Longman expects, it will succeed since most Scots wanted to remain in the EU. Only Wales and England voted to leave, and even then it wasn't the urban multicultural centers that rejected Europe, says Longman. Uh, For the English leave voters pining for the simpler, ethnically homogenous days of the British Empire... They probably just assured that England will be smaller and less imperial than ever. That's according to Martin Longman over at Washington Monthly. In the meantime, Nick Dearden, director of UK's Global Justice Now, a democratic social justice organization which opposed the Brexit vote to leave the EU, said in a statement today, Britain's decision to leave the European Union opens up a world of uncertainty in which we must now navigate In a positive direction, it will take some time before we know what the full impact will be. It could be years before we fully exit. But the leave vote represents a significant victory for the politics of fear and hate that dominated the campaign. He writes, it's hardly surprising that people have voiced such distrust towards the EU when it negotiates exploitative trade deals like TTIP, that's the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which many have compared to the TTP over here. TPP, thank you. The Pacific Uh, side. This would be on the Atlantic side. Uh, And uh, he says that it's uh, hardly surprising that people have voiced distrust with uh, those deals like the TTIP, uh, which he says visits economic destruction on its own member states and treats refugees as if they were criminals. Remember now... This is a group that was uh, against leaving the EU. Nick Dearden, uh, his uh, global justice now, but he's saying he understands uh, some of the reasons why people might want to do that. And he says, too often British governments have been pushing Europe to become less democratic, less transparent and more in debt to corporate and financial power. Sound familiar as well? He goes on to say, but the mainstream leave Campaigns have done a great deal of damage by pandering to nationalism, building a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment, and fostering the spurious notion that outside the EU we can return to an age when Britain was the world's foremost great power. So uh, those people who might pine for that great power appear, uh, according to uh, polling out of the UK, to be the older uh, Britons. Folks, uh, the the um, the highest votes, the highest number of votes to leave the European Union were among those 65 and older, where just 39 percent voted to remain. And basically, the numbers go down. If you look at uh, between uh, folks between 18 and 24 years of age, 75 percent of them wanted to remain in the European Union. Among 25-year-olds to 49-year-olds, 56% wanted to remain. So a majority wanted to remain if they were uh, younger than 50. Those folks who were 50 to 64 years old, uh, only 44% wanted to remain. And if they were 65 or older, just 39% wanted to remain. They wanted to get out. In the meantime, uh, via the Twitters, we hear from Emil Sorensen, a broadcast listener via Radio Sputnik in Denmark. He writes to say uh, the, to, uh, to me at the Brad blog on Twitter. He says elections in Britain, 100 percent not rigged by the establishment confirmed. 
I would say that's probably confirmed, and I would say, yep, well, that's because it's pretty damn hard to do that. It's pretty damn hard to rig an election the way they did it in uh, in Great Britain uh, with publicly hand-counted, hand-marked paper ballots. I'll tell you, I was kind of riveted watching the uh, watching the counting going on. Uh, yeah, it was in, remarkable. Uh, yeah, hand-counted out there in front of everybody, actual people, actual human beings taking ballots that had been marked by human beings in their own hands and counting it right then and there in front of all the people. And how many millions of them were there that they actually finished? They finished it all in one night. They, uh, you know, everybody was able to wake up today and know exactly what the results have been. And I have not seen anybody complain about the results, question the results, question if people had access to the polls. Imagine that public, overseeable democracy. In the meantime, Wolfie on Twitter writes a message to all who believe real Donald Trump will never be president. Take a look at the Brexit vote, then we'll talk. In fact, as recently as this past Wednesday, speaking of Donald Trump, uh, Trump said he didn't uh, think his opinion on the referendum mattered all that much since he really didn't know about the issues that were involved. He said it sounds like a good idea to me, um, but that uh, nobody should really listen to him because despite being the presumptive GOP nominee for president of the United States, he really wasn't familiar with the issues. You know, I, I don't think anybody should listen to me because I haven't really focused on it very much. So, yeah, it's not that important. Why bother? But in response to the Brexit results today, he is now celebrating the UK's uh, new independence from Europe, which is in and of itself a very different position uh, on European u unity that he had just a, a couple of sh a short years ago, as detailed today by David Korn at Mother Jones. The presumptive GOP nominee uh, tweeted, quote, just arrived in Scotland. Place is going wild over the vote. They took their country back just like we will take America back. No games. Of course, he missed the key point that the Scots favored remaining in the EU and uh, that they were actually going wild with despair, Corn notes. Yes, uh, Trump is, is taking a break from uh, his presidential campaign to go over to Scotland and promote one of his golf courses. Corn goes on to say he also tweeted uh, getting ready to open the magnificent Turnberry golf course in Scotland. What a great day, especially when added to the brave and brilliant vote. And in a Facebook post, Trump praised the UK voters for having declared their independence from the European Union and for voting, quote, to reassert control over their own politics, borders and economy. He compared a vote for Brexit to a vote for Trump, asserting that American voters, quote, will have the chance to reject today's rule by the global elite and to embrace real change that delivers a government of, by and for the people. He said, I hope America is watching. You know, I've been saying that I would prefer what happened. I thought this would be a good thing. I think it'll turn out to be a good thing, maybe short term not, but ultimately I think it will be a good thing. And again, I think that's what's happening in the United States. 
Yeah, well, he's kind of making this up as he goes along. Uh, Trump was not always a fan of breaking apart the European Union. David Corn notes, in fact, not long ago, he was hailing the need for European economic cohesion. In early 2013, as part of it, and this is just 2013, okay, three years ago. In early 2013, as part of its coverage of the Davos Global Conference, CNN's, uh, their website, they asked Trump to contribute a column addressing the global financial crisis and Europe as an investment opportunity. It identified Trump as, quote, one of the world's most uh, for, world's foremost investors. And in his article, Trump waxed on about the need for international economic interdependence. Here's what he wrote. He said, the near meltdown we experienced a few years ago made it clear that our economic health depended on dependence on each other to do the right thing. We are now closer to having an economic community in the best sense of the term. We work with each other for the benefits of all. I think we've all become aware of the fact that our cultures and economics are intertwined. It's a time for working together for the best of all involved. Never before has the phrase, quote, we're all in this together, had more resonance or relevance. He summed it up this way. He said, we will have to leave borders behind and go for global unity when it comes to financial stability. That was just three short years ago. Uh, he said this was particularly true regarding Europe. He wrote, Europe is a tapestry that is dense, colorful, and deserving of continued longevity and prosperity. There are many pieces that must be carefully fitted together in order to thrive. Our challenge is to acknowledge those pieces and to see how they can form a whole that works together well without losing any cultural flavor in the process. It's a combination of preservation along with forward thinking. His larger message says Korn, was that economic cohesion was necessary for global prosperity. The future of Europe, he wrote, as well as the United States, depends on a cohesive global economy. All of uh, all of us must work, must work together towards that very significant common goal. That was Donald Trump just a few short years ago, now singing a completely different uh, song David Korn and Mother Jones adds Trump was clearly an advocate of European economic cooperation, noting we're all in this together. But that was before he became a candidate crusading against the system who smelled a short term political investment opportunity. So he has dumped that grand talk of global economic cohesion and embraced the Brexit. After all, this allows Trump to promote his own agenda agenda and his own golf course. David Korn over at Mother Jones. Of course, nobody actually knows where this is going. Nobody knows it. People have been talking about it all day on uh, all the cable channels and everywhere else and in Great Britain. They don't know. Nobody knows. This is a total roll of the dice. You will hear many pundits telling you uh, what this means and what will happen. And in truth, none of them know. Those are the very same pundits who also told you that Trump could never become the Republican Party's nominee for president. Don't forget that. So these pundits, they're just making it up as they go, just like Donald Trump. This is totally uncharted territory. And it has tapped into a vein of anti-immigrant hostility and nationalism that cynical charlatans like Trump are eager to exploit for their own personal gain, and they're doing a good job of it. 
And as with uh, Trump's message about European unity a few years ago and now how wonderful this is uh, that that Great Britain is leaving, even though he doesn't really follow it that closely, nobody should listen to him. Uh, as with that message, uh, the claims that the, uh, uh, the, the leave European Union folks, the Leave campaign has been making, are really, in truth, totally dishonest. Here is Nigel Farage. He's the leader of the UK Independent Party. They led the effort to leave the EU. Here he is this morning on Good Morning Britain uh, as anchor uh, Susanna Reid asked him about the Vote Leave campaign's signature pledge. That was that leaving the, leaving the European Union would allow for some 350 million pounds to be spent on the UK's National Health Service, on the NHS, instead of them having to give it to the EU. Now that they have won, now that Nigel Farage and the UK Independent Party and the Vote Leave campaign has actually won, now that they've tricked voters into voting their way, well, things aren't quite as rosy as they were uh, during the campaign. Here's, uh, here's Nigel Farage on Good Morning Britain today. The £350 million a week we send to the EU, which we will no longer send to the EU, can you guarantee that's going to go to the NHS? No, I can't. And I, and I would never have made that claim. That was one of the mistakes I think, think that the Leave campaign made. Well, Hang on a moment. That was one of your adverts. Well, it wasn't one of my adverts, I can assure well, you. Well, that was one of the Leave campaign's was, adverts. It was, was that it that was, money was going to go to the NHS. And I think they made a mistake. That's why people, many people have voted. They, they, they made a mistake in doing that. But what I can tell you is we have a nice... You're saying after 17 million people have voted for Leave, yep. based... I don't know how many people voted on the basis of that advert, but that was a huge part of the propaganda... You're not saying that's a mistake. We have a £10 billion a year, a £34 million a day feather bed that is going to be free money that we can spend on the NHS, on schools, or whatever it is. But you're not guaranteeing that that money, as promised, will go well, to you the must NHS. Un- you must understand, I was ostracised by the official Leave campaign and, did my, and as I've always done, there, did my own thing. Do you think there are <laughs> other things that people will wake up this morning and find out aren't going to happen as a result of voting this way? Well, i tell you what they will find out, that we're back to being a normal country, uh, in charge of our own laws, and able to start making our own relationships with the rest of the world, maybe even re-engaging with the Commonwealth. We're, we're now our own country. We need to be our own country again. Exactly what Donald Trump has been saying. We need to be our own country. If we don't have borders, then we don't have a real country. That's what he's saying now, now that he's running for president. Uh, So a lot of surprises uh, in Great Britain and for uh, uh, the voters in the UK and in the EU today. Uh, Manda K. Reynolds tweets, To my fellow Americans watching Brexit in disbelief, do not take November or any election lightly. Your vote matters. Yes, again, I'm reminded of Donald Trump, though, and those who think that he offers a few things that, that you wish, that you wish Democrats offered, that he wouldn't really be that bad. Because, you know, in the end, both major parties, they're pretty much the same. They're pretty much the same. No real difference. Not a dime's worth of difference. Okay, to you, I would say pay attention. Pay attention to what happened in Great Britain today. To those who think that the U.S. electorate is incapable, in a similar way, of giving a huge middle finger to the establishment ruling class, I would say pay attention to Brexit. To those who think that Trump is just, he's so insane, he will never, he could never be elected by the American people. 
Many of those uh, uh, folks, by the way, who are saying that are the same people who said he could never be nominated by the Republican Party. He's so insane. He could never be elected. It's one thing to win the nomination, but no, he, he'll never win in a general election. To you, I also say pay attention to Brexit. Democracy has consequences. If it could happen there, yeah. Pay attention to Manda K. Reynolds on the Twitter. Once again, to my fellow Americans watching Brexit in disbelief, do not take November or any election lightly. Your vote matters. Yeah, it does. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about some of your votes that matter or that hopefully will matter or that people are fighting to make matter. Um until then, I'll just uh, we'll take a quick break. But I will note that my uh, uh, des you may like this my uh, my most popular tweet last night on on the Twitters. Hey Texas, if Great Britain can do it, you can too. Hashtag Texit. <laughs> oh my! We're back in a moment. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Well, I think the people of Great Britain have made it clear they want to go. Or some of them. Some of them. Well, 52%, a majority of them, a majority the of those who, who showed up to vote. Who bothered to vote, right? And they had a, a pretty good turnout. It was about 75% of the electorate turned out. But, of course, that means one in four didn't turn out, which people were very upset about. Uh, but, hell, that's uh, kind of a lot better than we do in this country. Uh, one thing I'm struck of, actually, before I get to that, let me just uh, note during the break here, we got a, uh, a another a breaking news notice, this one from NBC News, that that number of uh, dead in West Virginia due to the historic flooding going on right now uh, has gone from 18, as it was before the break, now to 20 dead in that horrible flooding. According to NBC, I expect that uh, that number will continue to rise along with the water. 
Uh, okay. Um, it, it, I, I was started to say that I, I was struck by the fact that there were no complaints, at least so far. I haven't seen any complaints of things like voter suppression. People, you know, deciding who may vote, and who may not vote. I haven't seen any complaints about that. No one, at least so far that I know of, has so far questioned the accuracy of the tallies. Despite the incredibly divisive issue at stake that split the country right down the middle in the UK on this one. Uh, and again, I would chalk that up to, uh, you know, publicly counted uh, paper ballots, handmarked, publicly counted in front of everyone. Now, as disappointing as those results may have been to many in uh, in Britain, that lack of problems simply holding a vote is a far cry from what we have seen in this country over this recent presidential primary and, frankly, over uh, recent elections uh, for the past several years. The fights over who may vote, how and if votes are tallied, tallied at all, and the accuracy of those tallies, those fights continue. Uh, and the fight to be able to oversee the counting continues. There's a, a fantastic effort, frankly, going on right now. And I've been working on this story for a while. Maybe we'll be able to uh, uh, bring you something on it in the in the coming days. But there's been a fantastic story of uh, the, the citizen observers out here in California, all across the state, as the state continues to count from the June 7th primary election. Uh, you know, millions of votes were uncounted after Election Day, uh, about uh, two or three million. Now, mind you, by the way, in uh, in Great Britain, I think, what was it, 30 something, 35 million votes that they counted? Boom. Overnight. Done. Uh, we're still counting them out here in California. And one of the reasons is because of our confusing system our confusing primary system where some people may vote, other people may not. Uh, if you're a Democrat, you can vote in the Democratic primary. If you're a decline to state, a no-party preference voter, you can vote if you want, if you uh, let the, 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 the poll worker know that you'd like to vote in the Democratic primary. You can vote in that primary, but you can't vote in the Republican primary. It's all very, very confusing. It is, frankly, a mess, and it is very difficult to oversee at all, even in the best of circumstances. But there's a lot of citizens who have been paying attention, who have been trying to make sure that every provisional ballot that uh, some people were forced to cast, either because they were they didn't show up as being registered correctly at the polling place uh, or they were uh, voting at the wrong polling place, that they're fighting to make sure that all of those ballots actually get counted and counted accurately. And they're doing a hell of a job. There were thousands of votes that might have otherwise been thrown out, and it looks like they will now be counted thanks to these citizens. As I said, maybe we'll have more on that upcoming. In the meantime, last update from the California Secretary of State says there are still 664,000 uncounted uh, ballots across the state. Uh, last update I was able to get from L.A. County, the largest voting jurisdiction, uh, says that there's about 175,000 un uh, uncounted ballots. That would be unprocessed provisional ballots mostly. And the uh, registrar recorder has told me they are actually going back now to try to count a bunch of ballots that they hadn't uh, previously tallied in the presidential race. Um, let's see, what are our numbers at now? Just so you know, uh, there is still a uh, pretty huge difference, certainly here in in Los Angeles County between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. She still leads by about 12 points across the state. However, 
the uh, the results have been narrowed. Now they're now into the single digits. Now a little bit over nine percent margin with Hillary Clinton leading Bernie Sanders. But that fight continues. The fight to make sure that every vote counts, no matter what the results ultimately are. And that fight is continuing in advance of the November elections, when things are going to get really ugly, when everything happens at the same time. And when you've got some uh, 17 states that have passed more restrictive voting laws in the past couple of years that will be in place uh, this November for the first time in 50 years that the Voting Rights Act will not be fully enforced thanks to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court gutting it back in 2013. So the fight, the state-by-state fight for the vote continues, and it continued this week in North Carolina, where they passed what I've uh, described as the mother of all voter suppression laws. They passed it shortly after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Uh, It's really, it's the worst in the country. I mean, it restricts early voting. It uh, ends same-day registration. It uh, puts in place a, a, a strict photo ID restriction. And uh, that has been largely upheld by a um, by a U.S. District Court judge, a George W. Bush appointee. And now uh, the voting rights advocates in North Carolina are appealing that decision. And this week, this past week uh, in a federal appeals court, uh, that court began to consider whether North Carolina's election law discriminates against minorities in a case that could affect voting in the state in the November presidential election. This according to Ann Maramow of the Washington Post. She writes, civil rights groups and the Obama administration are challenging the law, saying it eliminated measures that made voting easier for poor residents and that were used at high levels by African-Americans. Opponents object to the end of same-day voter registration, the rollback of week uh, of, of a week of early voting, and the prohibition on out-of-precinct voting. The groups also want the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit to review the requirement that voters produce a government-issued identification card before casting ballots. Marimau notes that North Carolina is one of 17 states that will have more restrictive voting laws in place for this presidential election than they did previously. Laws in several other states, including Texas, Wisconsin and Virginia, are also being challenged in court right now. The lower court in uh, that that upheld North Carolina's election law in April rejected the argument that large numbers of minority voters would be disenfranchised. Washington Post Post notes that Governor Pat McCrory, their Republican governor in North Carolina, has said that the measure would help prevent voter fraud and has said that the identification requirement is no different than what is needed to board an airplane. Governor Pat McCrory is lying. He is lying about that. Yes, the uh, the requirements are different than that uh, needed to board an airplane, as I have pointed out over and over and over again. And as indeed I pointed out to Ann Marimau at The Washington Post after Zach Roth over at uh, MSNBC brought it to my attention that Washington Post had reported it this way. In fact, and I'm holding the uh, the TSA identification rules for boarding airplanes from their website in front of me here. 
And it says uh, that while adult passengers 18 and over must show valid identification at the airport checkpoint in order to travel, it goes on and lists all of the IDs that are that are allowed. And they're way more, way more, about uh, three times as many as are now required in the state of North Carolina. Uh, three times as many different types of ID cards that you can use rather than what North Carolina did in limiting it to a very few number of IDs that they know a lot of Democratic-leaning voters, minority voters, Hispanic voters, elderly voters, student voters, that they know that they don't have. Um in North Carolina, there are way more uh, ID cards that you can use if you want to board an airplane. And if you don't have one, according to the TSA, they write in the event you may arrive at the airport without valid identification, you may still be allowed to fly. The TSA officer may ask you to complete a form to, inclu to include your name and current address and may ask additional questions to confirm your identity. But if your identity is confirmed, you will be allowed to enter the screening checkpoint and you may be a subject to uh, additional screening and so forth. But you will get to fly. So when Pat McCrory, the governor of North Carolina, tells people, tells the public, tells the Washington Post that the identification requirement is no different than what is needed to board a plane, that governor is absolutely lying to the public. And I have brought this up before because the media continue to report it this way. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to give them credit. OK, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't realize it. Maybe they go to airports and they're asked for their ID cards and they think, well, yeah, that's a requirement. I'm always asked for my ID when I fly. Yeah, you're asked for your ID. But if you don't have one, you will still be able to fly. So she got it wrong. Uh, Zach Roth brought it to my attention from MSNBC. Uh, we both let her know that she got it wrong. Uh, she said, thank you very much. And a little bit later, a couple hours later, I said, well, did you update the story? Are you going to be issuing a correction with your story? She said, my update is here. And she pointed to an update in which it said, Governor Pat McCrory has said the measure would help prevent voter fraud and that the identification requirement is no different than what is needed to board an airplane no correction, no update, no clarity for the American people. She essentially allowed Pat McCrory to lie to the public. Now, Pat McCrory may have said that. I'm sure he did say that. But is it the media's job to uh, to correct them when they lie about such things? I would argue that, yes, it is. And as far as preventing fraud, uh, during the trial, the state of uh, North Carolina was unable to find any fraud. I think they might have found two instances going back uh, some 20 years uh, in which photo ID might at the polling place might have deterred a fraudulent vote. That despite the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are being turned away by this law. Uh, going back to the Washington Post now, trying to overlook uh, <laughs> this bad reporting. Let's get back to some of the accurate reporting from the Washington Post. North Carolina's legislature passed new voting restriction rules in 2013 in the weeks after the Supreme Court in a narrow five to four vote, got rid of a requirement that certain states with a history of discrimination like North Carolina receive pre-approval before changing election laws. The North Carolina measure was approved by the state Republican state's Republican led Senate with every African-American senator voting against it at the time. 
Last Tuesday, Judge James A. Wynn Jr. and Henry F. Floyd in the uh, appellate court, they remarked on the timing of the passage of that law and on comments from a state senator who said lawmakers were no longer restrained by the, quote, legal headache, unquote, of the Voting Rights Act. It's a legal headache. The timing, quote, Looks pretty bad to me, Judge Floyd said in the uh, in the courtroom, prompting murmurs of agreement from the court uh, packed with opponents of the law. The uh, lawyer representing North Carolina said, Your Honor, it was not a nefarious thing. (laughs) Sure, of course, it was not nefarious. It was just for fun. Judge Wynn later asked Farr to explain why the law does not permit voters to rely on public assistance cards which are disproportionately used by minorities in the state as one of the acceptable forms of identification under the law. So, uh, you know, public assistance, if you're on food stamps or other, you know, sort of welfare programs, you have a card, you have an ID card, but that card was struck from the list of cards that could be used when you go to vote. And this is another thing I always hear from these uh, disinformed dopes uh, when they're arguing in favor of these photo ID restrictions. Hey, yeah, sure, it may affect some people uh, who are poor. uh, But, you know, if they're going to get food stamps, if they're going to get welfare, they have to have an ID. Well, they do. They have here. They have there's a public assistance card that they can use, but they can't use it to vote in the state of North Carolina. Justice Department, U.S. Justice Department attorney Anna Baldwin told the court Tuesday that uh, as a result of North Carolina's rules, thousands of voters in 2014 were, quote, shut out of the political process. We've uh, proven outright denial of those voters, she said. A lower court judge, however, had disagreed. He upheld the state's law in April. This was the George W. Bush appointee. uh, Upheld the law in April, ruling and rejecting uh, the argument that large numbers of minority voters would be disenfranchised. Ari Berman noted uh, after the hearing in that uh, appellate court that the panel of judges on the Fourth Circuit appeared skeptical of North Carolina's voting restrictions. According to the initial press reports, it looks pretty bad to me in terms of purposeful discrimination, Judge Henry Floyd told a lawyer for the state. A reversal of the district court's opinion, at least on some counts, actually seems possible now in the state of North Carolina. So potentially, potentially we will see some good news could come out of that um, out of that hearing in North Carolina. We'll keep our eyes on that. A couple of the judges who were here who were overseeing that uh, that hearing had previously uh, ordered a stay on some of the worst elements of the North Carolina law, including the end of same-day registration uh, and limiting early voting and so forth. They had previously put a stay on that. So we'll see. They may overturn this law uh, entirely or in part in the days ahead. In the meantime, that's North Carolina. In the meantime, Desi Doyen in your great state of Texas... Oh, dear. Yes, I know. Buckle up. Remember, text it. Hashtag text it. <laughs> you people can leave. You can just vote to leave. That would be okay. I, actually, we, we we can't, but that that's a whole other thing for well, a Well, that's a whole day. different uh, story. Yeah. You're right. But if you did leave, I would say we would build a wall and I would make Texas pay for it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs>
More than five years after Republicans fast-tracked legislation limiting the forms of ID accepted to vote in Texas elections, this according to the Texas Tribune, state taxpayers are still picking up the tab for defending the nation's strictest Voter identification law in court, says the Tribune. The state has spent now more than three and a half million dollars defending the law in the five separate lawsuits that it has spawned. Records obtained from the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office shows. And by the way, I should note uh, Texas uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, he's under felony indictment. He's the attorney general. He's under felony indictment. Well, he, he likes to be close to the law. Yes, he does. And he's defending this law uh, against all of these various lawsuits. He's defending it now after the former attorney general, Greg Abbott, a remarkably skilled liar, uh, after he ascended in the state of Texas to governor. Greg Abbott is now the governor there. And I never thought anyone could make the former Texas governor, Rick Perry, look smart. Somehow, Governor Greg Abbott does that. He's just he's unbelievable. He's just an incredible liar. He's unbelievable. Anyway, I digress. Uh, The A.G. Paxton's legal team is battling the U.S. Department of Justice, minority groups, other opponents who argue thus far successfully that Senate Bill 14, which was passed in 2011, discriminates against minorities, elderly and poor Texans most likely to lack acceptable government issued I.D.s. Paxton, Governor Greg Abbott, and the law's backers say it's uh, the law is needed to protect the integrity of elections by preventing voter fraud. But opponents cite the paucity of proven voter fraud in the state and argue that the intent was to disenfranchise certain voters. And of course, it was. The cost will continue to grow, reports the Tribune, with uh, most spending attached to the uh, to the main VC versus Abbott lawsuit. That's the primary lawsuit, which has been going on now for three years. It's been going on for three years, and the state of Texas lost it. They lost the case. The law was found to be unconstitutional. The law was found to be in violation of the Voting Rights Act by the federal court. And yet the law is still in place. The law is still in place despite the fact that the uh, the court found that there were some 600,000 already registered voters, legally registered voters who would not be able to vote this November, this November, for example. There was over a million voters who are eligible to vote, uh, but who will not be able to vote under this law because they don't have the type of photo IDs that are required to vote under this illegal, unconstitutional law. And yet it is still in place as the legal proceedings continue and as Texas, Texas taxpayers, I should note, begin uh, continue to rack up three point five million dollars in spending trying to defend it. If I were a Texas taxpayer, says Gary Ebert, the executive director of the Campaign Legal Center and an attorney in the Texas uh, photo ID litigation, if I were a Texas taxpayer, I'd be outraged by how much money Texas is spending of my tax dollars to defend a discriminatory law. Greg Abbott, who was attorney general when the litigation began, considers the law worthy of defense, however, and his office blames the federal government for the need to spend money in court. Uh, The law sailed through the Republican-dominated legislature back in 2011 after then-Governor Rick Perry actually declared it an emergency item. They passed it under emergency rules. 
which allowed the bill, the bill to be fast-tracked at the time when lawmakers were also debating how to plug a budget shortfall. So they were fighting over how to uh, plug the shortfall by passing a bill that is going to cost money, that is going to keep voters from being able to vote, and is going to cost millions of dollars in order to defend in court. And they knew it at the time. In 2011, this was before the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court. So in 2011, the law was rejected. Uh, it was found to be uh, discriminatory by the uh, U.S. Department of Justice, by a federal court as well at the time. And so it was uh, it, it was not enacted back in 2011 or it was not implemented at the polls in 2011. This time, however, it was. They took that same bill. And after the uh, Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, they said, OK, that bill we passed, it's back on. Boom. And that's the law that was subsequently found to be illegal, unconstitutional. And yet that is the law that has been in place. And that is the law that uh, so-called fiscal conservatives in the state of Texas have been willing to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to defend, to stop people from voting, to stop legal voters from voting, and to spend millions of dollars of Texas taxpayer dollars that, guess what, they could be using in a referendum to leave the union and then to pay for the wall that we're going to make them build thereafter. I'm Brad, and this is the Bradcast. We'll be back. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, 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 let it shine. Song used in the uh, civil rights era as recorded by American bluegrass legend Dr. Ralph Stanley, who died on Thursday. He was a member of the Grand Ole Opry and the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. He helped bring bluegrass to a new generation when his music was featured on the multi-platinum soundtrack of the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? In 2000, he was named a U.S. Library of Congress living legend and received the National Medal of the Arts in 2006. The Stanley Brothers Rank Stranger is part of the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. That's a list of recordings that are culturally and historically important. Dr. Ralph, as he was known to bluegrass fans, died at the age of 89 after a battle with cancer. Love that tune. Thank you very much, Desi. Um, okay, uh, very quickly here, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, we're now learning more about the specifics of those folks who were purged in Brooklyn. In that voter purge uh, back, uh, you may recall, after the uh, New York primary there, what was it, last month? I can't even remember. Whenever the hell it was. April. Um, it, more than 120,000 voters were purged from the rolls. Bernie Sanders supporters 
uh, screamed uh, a bloody murder that they were being uh, disenfranchised. Um, and were they? Who knows? We know that, uh, well, we actually now have some information on that, but I should note that Hillary Clinton won the uh, the three congressional districts in Brooklyn. So it seemed at the time that this purge would be more likely to affect her voters than Bernie Sanders. But now we have uh, some information on this from WNYC. This uh, voter roll purge was immediately recognized by the uh, uh, New York Election Board as being uh, in violation of the way such purges should work. Yes, they have to do purges from time to time because people move, because people die, they're convicted of felonies and so forth, and they're removed from the rolls. But apparently they did it completely uh, wrong. In in Brooklyn. And the question of how nefarious that purge was and who was actually affected by it is uh, is still being investigated at this time. Both state and city officials are investigating that purge. But WNYC, the uh, the public radio station in New York, obtained the list of every voter the board says was removed from the books in a major purge over two days last summer. When mapped by election district, the analysis shows that Hispanic voters were disproportionately purged from the rolls when compared with all other groups. Uh, Hispanic voters went for Hillary Clinton. So if, in fact, they were purged disproportionately, then uh, once again, um, that would have hurt Hillary Clinton more than it would have hurt Bernie Sanders, at least if these numbers hold up. WNYC notes that the two top clerks at the Brooklyn office have been suspended without pay since shortly after the primary and the uh, executive director of the Board of Elections uh, apologized uh, earlier this month and announced that the board would return all of the purged voters to the rolls in time for Tuesday's congressional primary. I guess they have a... Yeah, I know. Don't roll your eyes, Des. Uh, <laughs> they've got a, a, a congressional primary out there in a few days. Um, after that report from WNYC about the Hispanics, uh, Hispanic voters being disproportionately removed from the rolls, there were more questions about exactly who those people were that were removed. So one of the questions that WNYC looked at, what is the age breakdown of the people who were purged? Well, the median age of those purged was 53 years old. Just 1% of those on the purge list were under 30. 15% of registered voters under 30 uh, uh, borough-wide, uh, that 1% that's compared to borough-wide, it's generally 15% of registered voters are under 30. So this was a very small portion of those under 30. And again, Sanders supporters had uh, noted that young voters they feared were purged more than anyone else. It does not look like that, according to the actual evidence here. For Brooklyn voter rolls as a whole, the median age was 47. So overall, those purged skewed slightly older than average. The median age of those purged was 53 years old. So uh, the investigations continue. WNYC finds that 96% of the people on the list were registered by 2008. So 96% of those purged were registered by before 2008 and last voted in 2008. Um and again, this would seem to go against the uh, charges being made by uh, Sanders supporters that, you know, they, they purge new voters. Because my question was always, uh, well, how do you know they're purging Sanders voters? How would they know 
who the Sanders voters are. And they say, well, they would be the young ones. They would be the people who had, uh, you know, recently registered and so forth. That does not seem to be who these people were, at least, you know, in this 122,000 uh, people who were purged in Brooklyn, purged incorrectly. Uh, but they don't appear to be uh, Sanders supporters, at least not more so than uh, Hillary Clinton. But WNYC speaks to that specifically. Uh, let's see, where all the, the all the purge voters were not Democrats, just 64 percent of them were Democrats. Ten percent were Republicans and the rest were registered to other parties. Did the purge have an impact on Clinton or Sanders voters? WNYC answers this question directly. They say apparently yes, equally, maybe, they write. Here's the deal. We know where Clinton and Sanders won, and we know how many Democrats were purged in each of those election districts, but we don't know who the purged voters would have voted for, and we can't be certain how many tried to vote. All of that said, they note, the Democrats were purged at similar rates in election districts where Clinton won and where Sanders won, about 8.2 or 8.4 percent in each of those election districts that were won by either Clinton or Sanders. In raw numbers, they say 60,000 Democrats were purged in districts that went for Clinton and just 15,500 were purged where Sanders won. Though that's the, the that's the facts that we know. And uh, last Monday, I went on a rant about uh, the people claiming that this election was stolen, uh, largely Sanders supporters claiming that Hillary Clinton stole it, claiming that the DNC stole it, citing evidence like the purge in Brooklyn to support that theory. And uh, that evidence is just not there. There's still a lot more to come out and people are still fighting like hell to oversee, uh, you know, make sure that people can vote, make sure that ballots and votes are counted and everything else. Uh, and maybe someone stole it. I don't know. But that evidence is not there. Certainly not the evidence that Hillary Clinton stole it or that the DNC stole it. I saw somebody write about over at uh, jackpineradicals.com org or dot com. I can't remember uh, about my uh, rant on this. You can look it up. Go to bradblog.com. Uh, I think the item uh, with the show that I posted was called about that stolen Democratic primary. Uh, people wrote about that uh, over at Jack Pine Radical. And uh, someone suggested that uh, they thought Brad Friedman was uh, he used to be uh, good on this issue. But now something has happened. I think I hear he's running for office. What? And that's why he's changed. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's, that's yeah. what I would call reaching for straws. Kind of. Yeah. I assure, uh, I assure you I am not uh, I am not running for office. I am maybe running from office. Anyway, uh, I had hoped to get to this uh, Bernie Sanders comment on uh, Stephen Colbert on Thursday night where he appeared. Uh, I guess we'll have to hold that to for our next thrilling episode. Ran out of time. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us, particularly those who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we do on the public airwaves, continuing to connect all of the dots between your votes, the climate, and everything else that uh, too many people in the mainstream media just can't seem to do. So thank you for that. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com for free anytime or over at iTunes. You can also drop me email if you like. You can draft me for office, perhaps. I am bradcast.com. 
at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.